0: You're listening to Ask the Expert on Sprott Money News.
1: Welcome back to the August 2021 edition of the Sprott Money News Ask the Expert series. I'm your host, Craig Hempkin. and joining us this month is a new guest. Her name is Lynn Alden. And if you are interested in, in the financial sector, if you follow things on Twitter, if you go on the Internet and look for independent research and analysis, You probably know who Lynn Alden is. She runs a great website that is just simply lynnalden.com. You can find her on Twitter at lynnaldencontact. And her website and her service is the Lynn Alden Investment Strategy, which she has been running since 2016. She is an independent, very independent analyst and investor. And it's great to have her join us. Lynn, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
1: It's great to have you here. And why don't we start with this, Lynn, before we get to the questions, uh, tell everybody a little bit about your background and uh, the services you provide at your site.
0: Uh, Sure. So my background is basically the intersection of engineering and finance. And so I started out as an engineer, uh, moved into engineering management and running the finances for an engineering facility. Uh, And then I, I eventually shifted more towards investment research and kind of applying that quantitative background. And so my website has a free newsletter. Uh, that's that's pretty uh, in depth, and then I also have a low cost uh, premium research service on the site as well. So there's a, a big spectrum of things for people there.
1: And people just it's just Lynn Alden, L Y N A L D E N dot com, correct?
0: Yes, that's correct.
1: All right. Hey, let's uh, have everybody check that out. And again, I want to remind everybody if you enjoy this type of content, please be sure to help us spread the word uh, by giving us a like, a subscribe, a share on whichever channel you are listening. Tuesdays, Ask the Expert segments. Uh, Lynn, let's just dive right in. We've uh, been collecting questions at Brought Money all month long since we announced you were going to be the guest. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've got six of them. The first one is quite timely as we record this on Monday, the 23rd. Uh, I think everything uh, for this week and next month and maybe the rest of the year is going to be centered around whatever it is that Chairman Powell has to say this coming Friday at Jackson Hole. Uh, And and you've watched all of this in the last uh, several months as this has played out. What do you expect from Chairman Powell in his Jackson Hole speech this coming Friday?
0: So the Fed has spent the last uh, couple months kind of laying a foundation for uh, eventually trying to taper their asset purchases. And so they put out those two uh, standing repo facilities. uh, And they've also had a number of uh, Fed officials start remarking around uh, you know, tapering. Uh, now they're starting to walk that back a little bit. Uh, you know, citing the Delta variant, uh, and and so and even their their Jackson Hole event is is virtual now uh, because of that. And so now they have some cover uh, where they could you know potentially choose to delay that. And so I would say that you know maybe two to four two to four weeks ago, my my probability was more toward that they probably would announce tapering at this event. Uh, and that's still certainly possible, but I think the odds are tilting a little bit more towards them probably defining the conditions that they might consider tapering. Uh, I'm not sure that they're going to commit to tapering uh, at this particular event, uh, but it's certainly a big question that I'm watching because they're basically seeing that inflation is running hot, uh, and there is kind of pressure on them to uh, start doing something about that.
1: Yeah, you know, that that's one of the themes <clears> – <throat> excuse me – we've been discussing uh, in some of the Sprout Money content this month is – whether this like the rally in the dollar that we've seen since this first came up two months ago is actually kind of a uh, buy the rumor, sell the news event. Is that kind of on your radar too?
0: That's certainly one of the possibilities. So gold has been under pressure. The dollar has been pretty strong. Uh, and so, but yeah, if they were to you know, shift back any sort of tapering or basically be more dovish than the market expects, that should theoretically be, be dollar bearish and, and gold bullish, for example.
1: All right. Hey, let's go to question number two because you kind of gave us a little segue right into it just a second ago. Uh, And we're going to use that T word, uh, transitory. It's just simply this Do you, Lynn, believe that all of this inflation pressure that we're seeing is, in fact, transitory as the Fed keeps repeating?
0: For the most part, no, but it depends on a couple of variables. And so, you know, we've seen kind of rolling types of inflation. So we had relatively transitory inflation in things like lumber. Uh, and then we've seen, you know, semiconductor shortages, which are more, you know, more long lasting, more persistent. So they're driving up things like used car prices. So that was like the second wave of inflation. Uh, and the one that I'm really watching for, uh, you know, towards the end of this year and into early 2022 is rent inflation. I think that's, you know, just heating up rent inflation and the way that they include shelter in CPI. Uh, and so that, that part's, you know, likely not going to be transitory. Um, now after say 2022, Whether that inflation remains persistent or not will will largely depend on whether or not they do more fiscal spending or if they pull back and kind of, you know, revert to trend. Uh, But I do think that this current round of inflation is probably stickier uh, than than consensus expects. And I think that that rent and shelter inflation is probably going to catch people off guard.
1: Yeah. Do do you see the word transitory as kind of a jawboning form of yield curve control trying to keep the bond market down or rates down?
0: I think that's a good way to describe it. So that's kind of, you know, one of my themes over the past couple of years is that because of where we are in the long-term debt cycle, the Fed doesn't have much of a, you know, they're basically stuck, right? So they, if they raise rates, they they crash the debt markets. Uh, and if they, you know, keep doing what they're doing, then then inflation runs hot and you get deeply negative real yields. And so, you know, they've kind of chosen that, that second option. Uh, and so you have this environment where, you know, inflation's running pretty hot, but they're, you know, they're emphasizing that it's transitory uh, you know, to make it so that the bond market doesn't freak out. Uh, and we also see other factors like the Treasury General account has been rolling down, which means there's not, not a lot of new supply of treasuries, even though the Fed's still buying $80 billion a month in treasuries. And so I, I would consider this basically a form of soft yield curve control. They haven't formally locked the long end of the curve, but they're holding the short end of the curve near zero. Uh, and then they're buying large amounts of, uh, you know, across the, the duration spectrum.
1: Yep. All right. Hey, let's uh, focus again on the central banks with question number three. It sure seems like the central bank digital currencies are on the way. You're getting more and more trial balloons on those, it seems, on a on a weekly basis. Uh, what role do you think gold might play in a world of central bank digital currencies?
0: Well, for one, is we still see banks buying gold, right? Central banks. Uh, so Russia's a big buyer, but you know, countries like Thailand. There's there's multiple countries around the world that have been buying gold, especially since around 2008. Uh, that that kind of long term trend reversed around that point and hasn't really stopped. So gold remains a reserve asset for central banks. Uh, for people, you know, the, the the thing about CBDCs is that they're you know they're surveillance tools, right? Um, There's also kind of been a general trend towards wanting to phase out cash, make it harder to remove yourself from the financial system. And so that's why, you know, independent bear assets, whether it's gold or Bitcoin, you know, whatever their person's persuasion is, silver as well. You know, there's there's certainly a a value in having these these alternative monies uh, that are basically outside of that system that you can transact in that are harder to surveil. Uh, that are harder to kind of lock into the system. So I, I think they're they're valuable both from a central bank perspective uh, and from a, a user perspective.
1: I like that term. I've not heard that before. Individual bearer asset. I think that's great.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you, you know, so cash is a bearer asset too, but of course yeah. the, prob- the problem is that, you know, Ne- deeply negative real rates means you can't you can't realistically hold a lot of cash outside of the financial system because you get devalued. Yeah. Um, and so you know people can choose between cash, gold, uh, Bitcoin, silver, uh, and so you know whatever their their preference is. Uh, but basically those those kind of more scarce inflation ad- adjusting you know assets uh, are certainly have value in this type of environment. of The combination of negative real yields uh, and this push towards you know anti privacy pro surveillance. Uh, you know, kind of the, these schemes to kind of, you know, maybe phase out cash and kind of lock people into this negative real rate environment. Mm-hmm. So I I still find them valuable.
1: Yep, no doubt. Well, we're having so darn much fun, Lynn, we're already halfway done. So well, let's uh, move on to question four. Uh, this I something that came up last week. Uh, Peter Thiel's company. I, is it Pal, Palantir? I, I don't quite know how to pronounce it. Uh, but his big company is uh, buying what is about maybe a metric ton of gold for about $50 million. Uh, also announced they're going to accept gold as payment. Uh, do you see any significance in that announcement?
0: Well, I mean that's, that's certainly significant. And it's kind of, you know, it's interesting because you've seen a trend for a couple uh, companies, a handful of companies, actually a pretty good number, putting Bitcoin on the balance sheet. Uh, and so this is an interesting move to see uh, one of the companies put gold on their balance sheet um, and it's one of those things where it's a small percentage of their cash position, so it's not like they converted all of their cash to gold, uh, but they did use that as, as you know, somewhat of a hedge. Uh, and so I think it's interesting, especially because they're pretty tied into uh, intelligence communities uh, right. and things like that. So they actually, it's, it's pretty interesting that from their perspective uh, that they want to own some gold. Uh, and. And I believe they already accept Bitcoin as payment. So basically, they're they're open to things that are just not cash, right? They want something that, you know, is scarce. And in Gold's case, of course, it's, it's resistant to cyber attacks. It's resistant to power outages. It's, uh, you know, it has these various, you know, kind of safeguards built into it. And from my understanding, I didn't look into that news as much as I probably should have. But I, my understanding is they took physical delivery. So they're not holding, you know, they're not holding some you know, like ETF or something. They actually, right. you know, t- took possession of the bars last I heard.
1: Yep. They said they were going to hold it. It looked like a, at a COMEX depository because they said they were holding it in the Northeast U.S. in a vault somewhere. That sounded like COMEX delivery even. Uh, you know, and the other th- part about that, as you said, the connection of the company um, is deep, the government connections. And didn't they say something about worrying about a black swan event, something like that?
0: I believe they did. Yeah. And so, you know, based on where we are in in kind of the long-term debt cycle, uh, you know, it's one, we're in one of those environments now where you could have, you know, what should otherwise be a low probability event happen on a random Sunday, some sort of currency announcement, some sort of something like that. Uh, And so it's, this is an environment where you want to have some real assets um, and people, of course, some people like to trade around those positions, um, but, you know, there are these things that can just happen on a Sunday where you don't get to trade around it. And so establishing position ahead of time uh, in some of the things that you consider to be defensive assets is, is, you know, in my view, worthwhile. And they're doing the classic thing where, I mean, they're you know, they're not making a giant bet on gold, but they're using it as insurance. They're putting a you know, portion of their assets into this. Uh, so they have this as like a, a hedge or a safeguard.
1: Kind of like what a lot of us individuals have done over the years. That's for Sure. All right, Lynn, just uh, drawing on your experience of kind of generally looking at all markets, uh, let's tie this uh, question It has to do with the mining sector, but I think it is value investing in general. It's so currently out of favor, the sector, but then just this notion of value versus growth. When and how might that bias uh, change?
0: I think it's largely tied to growth and rates. Uh, and so we've been in this long term environment. you can actually kind of separate into a couple of different epochs. So if you look over the past six century, value has outperformed growth. Uh, but ever since the early 80 s when you've been on this kind of you know this structural you know four decade trend of lower and lower interest rates, uh, gold uh, growth has done very well compared to value. Now there are there have been individual decades, especially like the 2000s uh, where value outperformed. Um, but generally, it's, it, we've been in a very strong growth environment where lower and lower interest rates uh, allow these kind of uh, high growth companies to be bid up to very, very high valuations because they're, you know, the discount rate is just so low. Now, if you were to get you know, more persistent inflation, uh, you know, potentially higher yields, but like as we discussed earlier, there's, there's basically you know, types of yield curve control in place. But when we get you know, higher levels of inflation, that can put more pressure on some of those, those high valuations of equities. Um, and so, yeah. And another way to look at it too is that the fiscal stimulus is inflationary, uh, but it also, in some ways, ends up being pro-growth. At least in certain areas, like like you know demand for for energy or demand for manufactured goods. And so that kind of you know that that trend we've been in for a while, I think, is going to reverse. The other thing I'd point out is that, you know, the past especially the past decade we've been in this commodity abundant environment right so with the introduction of shale oil uh, with overproduction of of copper uh, things like that we've been in this this period where we've been a long commodity bear market um, and and so that's you know that puts downward pressure on on prices um that you know that's part of the value sector the the you know the energy and the and the mining mm-hmm. sector. Um, and so when we kind of shift more towards a, a period of scarcity, which i think is what we're headed towards, uh those sectors uh in the value side uh probably should do pretty well and that can you know put more pressure on the growth sectors like just like uh consumer discretionary right so if you yeah. if your rents going up if your gas bills going up uh you've less money to spend on discretionary goods and so i uh, i think that that pendulum is probably shifting more towards you know not every I, I still own some growth stocks but i do think it's shifting more towards some of those out of favor uh value types of of areas
1: all right All right, Lynn, I saved this one for last. This is one that uh, I've been thinking about quite a bit. uh, And so I'm curious to hear your answer. Uh, And you kind of referenced this earlier with the Fed setting up their repo facilities and uh, making them uh, permanent, it seems. Um, We now have over a trillion dollars in reverse repo volume. It seems that locked in and growing every single day. So uh, does the U.S. risk negative Short-term rates, nominal negative rates, um, in the next crisis or slowdown,
0: they do risk that. They they've been pretty hesitant against that uh, so far. They've taken measures to you know prevent that from happening, uh, and so they have that that five basis point rate, for example, on the reverse repo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if we if we you know have another downturn, it's possible they'll go there. But I think that they've you know the Fed at least I think has looked at Europe uh, and saw that you know going going negative interest rates doesn't really help right so if you're in a, another type of regime you know lowering interest rates from 7% to 4% can help spur you know loan demand and things like that but when debts are so high uh you know people are making a decision to to take out credit or not uh, based on you know if, if interest rates go down 1% they're they're, they're you know choosing to take that on, whether or not they, they think they'll be able to use that money effectively and pay it back. Banks are also, you know, they're more concerned about, you know, the possibility of that loan not being paid back uh, rather than, you know, that, that specific, you know, that, that's, you know, that how many basis points spread they can get on it. Mm-hmm. And so overall, I think that, you know, they might turn to that, but I, I think they are starting to realize that the, that the, you know, they kind of run out of monetary policy room and lowered lower interest rates, especially into negative territory uh, doesn't give them the, the nominal GDP growth that they're looking for. I mean, if anything, you know, the, those negative rates, basically that that's withdrawing money from the system. Um, and so that kind of, you know, runs counter to some of their goals. And so uh, I'm kind of hoping they don't go that route, but we'll see.
1: Right. I mean, do you think unwittingly they'll be forced there just because there's, there's so much, so many dollars laying around, thus that reverse repo volume, but yet, it, you know, not enough places to put it?
0: So I, I, I would describe it in two different ways so basically in in 2019 when we had the repo spike there were there were too many treasuries compared to bank reserves uh-huh. uh, and in this environment we're somewhat in the opposite problem now the Fed has done so much QE, uh, and we've had the Treasury General Account drawdown, so there's not a lot of Treasuries being issued, and now they've actually gone deeper than they expected due to the debt ceiling uh, issue, which you know we're, we're probably going to see a resolution to that later this year. But for the moment, that you know they're not really able to issue Treasuries uh, on net, uh, and so we have essentially a collateral shortage, um, and so that that can push rates into you know lower uh, levels than the Fed expects. Uh, now, as we go out a little longer. Uh, and that that TGA situation resolves, and they you know they issue treasuries again. I think that could reverse it to some extent, and basically you know basically supply more collateral to the system. And it, when it comes down to the next economic downturn, kind of the separate point, the two levers they can pull are they they can keep doing more and more monetary policy, so they go negative rates. But we see that doesn't really work that effectively. Uh, or they can do what they did back in 2020, where they do the fiscal spending. And they see that that's a lot more impactful. Of course, it comes with inflation, uh, you know, part because it's impactful. Um, So my base case that we're going to see more of that where they're holding rates, very low levels and doing these kind of rounds of fiscal spending to get nominal GDP growth, inflation levels well above uh, the interest rates. And So you're stuck in this this long-term environment of negative real yields and these rounds of fiscal. Uh, But, you know, basically the monetary policy is mostly a Fed decision. Whereas the fiscal policy is that you know that complex mix of politics. And so you can get gridlocks, you can get all sorts of things. And so that mm-hmm. the timing of that can be a lot more challenging to monitor. And I think you know, big question that is States will be what happens with the 2022 elections.
1: Great stuff, Lynn. Again, we've been speaking with uh, independent analyst and investor Lynn Alden of the Lynn Alden Investment Strategy newsletter. You can find that at LynnAlden.com. And again, just a reminder, all of this content is sponsored by Sprott Money. So anytime you're in the market for precious metals or precious metal storage, Sprott Money is a reminder, a fully insured global precious metal storage service with some of the lowest storage fees in the industry. So anytime you're in the market for metal or storage, just go to SprottMoney.com slash storage, or of course, just give them a call, 888 861 0775. Lynn, thank you so much for your time. This has just been tremendous. I hope we can do it again sometime.
0: Happy to. Thanks for having me.
1: From all of us here at Sprott Money News and SprottMoney.com, thank you for listening. We'll have another Ask the Expert segment next month.